Amen. That's a blessing. I was just thinking about the, uh, just the power of the gospel. We had three generations standing up here. A testament to what happens when God enters someone's life. Amen. Praise the Lord. We're in 1 John 5 again. I, I've mentioned, typically I don't preach through a series that's, you know, every service the same series, uh, but I just, for whatever reason, with this one, felt led of the Lord to just kind of continually walk through this until we get through the end of this book. And Lord willing, uh, once we do, then we'll move on to some other things. Well, obviously we're going to move on to other things. I'm not starting back in chapter 1. Uh, unless you don't get it, and then maybe I will. Um, no, uh, but uh, anyway, uh, I just for whatever reason felt that the Lord was, was really leading to just continue through this, and, and even uh, just as time has gone on, I've, I've prayerfully considered, Lord, would you have me to preach something else? You know, here it's, I mean, it's several services in a row where in the same book, but I do think there is some value in that too, because we kind of see how it builds on itself. Um, but here we are in, in 1 John. We looked at the fi first five verses of this book uh, this morning. I'm not going to make you stand because we've been kind of up and down a little bit tonight. And I'll just let you remain seated. But we're going to begin in verse number five and just carry on through uh, down to verse number 13 tonight. So verse five says this, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he, speaking of Jesus, this is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. That's very important. We're going to get to that in a minute. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record. That God gave of his son. And this is the record. That God hath given, given to us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He that hath the son hath life. And he that hath not the son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the son of God. That ye may know that ye have eternal life. And that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. I want to preach to you tonight on salvation's dividing line. Salvation's dividing line. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, tonight as we look into your word, I just pray, Lord, that you would just take control of everything that's going on here. Control my mind and my mouth as I speak. 
uh, open our ears to hear and, and Lord, by your spirit, speak to us. And uh, Lord, just do what you desire, accomplish what you will among us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this morning, we spent some time just kind of talking about the, the reality that many people in the world believe themselves to be right with God when they're, when they're not. And, and that is a situation that, I mean, it is a reality. We live in a nation that, for a very long time at least, has been considered to be a Christian nation. And by that, what most people mean is that, uh, you know, the majority of Christians would identify themselves as Christian. In other words, that's their religion. That's what they accept as, as truth to one degree or another. But we know as children of God that, that not everyone who claims to be a Christian is really a child of God. We know that in part because Jesus himself said, that, that, there, that the road to, to life is straight and narrow, and it says few there be which go in thereat, right? But the road to destruction, on the other hand, is, is broad and wide, and there, there are many on that road. And so we, we find that not everyone who claims to be a child of God is. In fact, Jesus again said in that same passage of scripture in Matthew 7 that there will be many, not a few, but many that say to him in the judgment day, Lord, Lord, but he said, I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Not everyone who claims to be a Christian is simply because they have identified themselves as such. Now we know that to be true, and yet uh, I, I think that uh, because we care about people, because we, uh, you know, we don't like to to think ill of people, uh, we kind of have this tendency to, you know, just expect, you know, most people or, or maybe a lot of people, you know, if, if they've been around the truth and, and they've heard the gospel before, we, we just kind of have this hope, you know, that maybe something sunk in somewhere. We, we really hope that they're saved. And, and uh, I see this a lot when I, when I do funerals for people. And, and, and just the, it's amazing uh, the uh, acrobatic uh, uh, tendencies that people have to try and twist things to, to convince themselves or to convince others that this person who passed is in heaven, you know, because, because of, of, of some experience at some point in their life or something like that. But, but God makes it very clear to us that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are saved and there are lost. There's not middle ground in there. You are either a child of God or you are not. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't love people who are lost. Uh, not at all. Jesus loved the lost, and we're to give our lives for them. It doesn't mean that we're unkind or hateful, or, or even that we look at ourselves. We need to be careful that we don't look at ourselves as somehow exclusive or better than others. The only reason that we're saved is by the grace of God. I mean, really, it, it, it is not of anything we've done. It's, it's, it's what he's done for us. We're not better than anyone. But it is important for us to recognize that not everyone is saved. And it's really not even just the, the really terrible people in the world that are lost. I mean, there are people that we would, by, by man's account, by man's understanding, we would say, well, that's a good person. You know, they're kind, and, and I mean, they're just, uh, they're generous. They're just good people. I've known some really kind and loving 
and, and sweet and generous lost people. I really have. And I'm sure you have as well. But the truth is that there are some who are saved and there are some who are lost. There is a dividing line. And this passage of scripture that we just read really gives us a, an understanding of that distinction. It makes things very clear. Kind of the key verse here is, is verse number 12. And, and I quote this often because it really is the kind of the brass tacks of the issue. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. You either have Christ or you don't. There is no middle ground. You're either saved or lost. That is what you are. But he starts off this passage. Remember, uh, this morning we talked about the fact that in order to be a child of God, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. By placing your faith in Christ, that makes you a child of God. And verse number 6 begins to describe, and in somewhat of an apologetic way, not apologetic like apologizing for something, but apologetic in, in terms of uh, uh, a, a, an argument or, or a proving of a truth, it, it describes Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ, the Son of God. And so I want to look at this with you because we see this kind of proof, this proof of Christ, who He is. If we're going to get salvation right, we've got to understand who Christ is. And so verse number 6, it says, This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. Now, maybe you read that and you kind of scratch your head a little bit. What, what in the world is he talking about here? Jesus came by water and blood. What, what, are, what is he talking about? And you could probably read a lot of different commentaries and get a few different ideas of what exactly is being talked about here. But again, if you look at the context, the, the idea is we're trying to prove that Christ is who he says he is, that he is the savior of the world because it is only by faith in him that you can become a child of God. And so it's, it's proving out who Jesus is. And it says that he came by water and blood. Now, if you want to understand this, you need to allow the Bible to interpret the Bible. How, what, what is it talking about when it says that Jesus came by water? Well, let me give you a little bit of a clue here. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. And he began to talk to him about the fact that Jesus was come from God because of his teachings and all of that. And Jesus went straight into it. And he said, except a man be born again... He cannot see the kingdom of God, right? He must be born again. Marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. But in the process of explaining to him what it means to be born again, this is what he said. He said, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Born of water and of the spirit. Now, some people have twisted that to mean something that it doesn't mean. And a lot of people teach that that born of water is, is to be baptized. But immediately following that, Jesus said that you must be born of water and of the Spirit. And then he said that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So there are two births that must take place. The second one is a spiritual birth. The first one is a fleshly birth or a water birth. 
Do you know that not everyone who is in this room necessarily, and I don't know your heart, God does, but it's very possible that there are some in this room who have been born of water but have not been born of the Spirit. Now, all of us here have been born of water. How do I know that? Because you're sitting here in the room because this birth refers to the physical birth, right? When there is a, a baby in the, in the womb, and I'm not trying to be gross or graphic, but there's, there's fluid in there that protects that child and, 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 and guards it. And, and when that child is about to be born, what happens? A mother might say to her husband... My water just broke, right? And it's, it's time to have this baby because uh, that, that, uh, the birthing process is a water birth. It, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And so when the, when the Bible says here that Jesus came by water and blood, what he's saying is that Jesus, the Son of God, was born physically into this world. And believe it or not, that actually is a proof that he was the Messiah. Now you might say, how in the world does that prove that Jesus was the Messiah? Well, think about this with me. There were certainly people that were alive at that time that thought, you know, if God came to this earth, he would just appear, right? He would descend from heaven and reveal himself. I mean, I've even had people say this before. You know, if God really wanted me to believe in him, he'd put some kind of a sign in the sky, or he would appear in the flesh so that I could see him. But did you know that God did appear in the flesh? It just happened to be a way that we wouldn't maybe expect it ourselves. But 1 Timothy 3.16 says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, God was manifest in the flesh. He did. God came and dwelt in the flesh. John 1 and verse 14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's the same word that he said just 14 verses earlier, 13 verses earlier. He said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That word became flesh. He, he entered this world, but he didn't enter this world by descending down from heaven. He was born into this world just as you and I. That may seem strange, but I want you to Think about this with me. When, why, why does that prove that he was who he said he was? Because the Old Testament scriptures prophesied that the Messiah, the Christ, would come in that manner. Even though many people didn't receive that, didn't accept it, I want to show you that the Bible said that he would. So go with me, if you would, back to the book of Isaiah. And I'll warn you right now that we're going to do a fair amount of turning here in the next few moments, and, and we're going to flip back and forth a little bit to show you some things. And if you don't feel like you can keep up with that, that's fine. Just maybe take some notes, and you can look these things up later. But in the book of Isaiah, chapter number 7, probably a familiar verse to us, and, and one that you've heard, no doubt. But notice in uh, Isaiah 7 and verse 14, look what it says here. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So we're talking about a birth. Now, it wasn't necessarily a normal birth because it was a virgin birth. But it was a birth nonetheless. A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. Listen to this. Or and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. 
Now we know what the word Emmanuel means, don't we? The word Emmanuel means God with us. That's going to be the name of this this child that is promised by God here in Isaiah 14. The Lord himself shall give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now go forward a page or two to chapter 9. Isaiah 9 and verse number 6. It says, For unto us a child is born... Unto us a son is given. Now, okay, so there's going to be a baby born that's special in some way. But here's what it says. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. And upon the throne of David and and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it. With judgment and justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. What's he saying? The the promised one, the Christ, the Messiah, number one, is God. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. And how is he going to be born? Or how is he going to come into this world? By a birth. A son is given. A child is born. Isn't it interesting that Jesus chose to come in this manner. He chose to take on flesh in much the same way that you and I take on flesh, through a physical birth. And in so doing, he proved that he was the one that should come, the one that was promised to come. Uh, Matthew chapter number 1, back over to the New Testament, we read in Isaiah 7 that the Messiah would come, that his name would be called Emmanuel. God with us. But when we come to Matthew 1, look with me at verse number 18. Matthew 1, 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily, But while he thought on these things, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, listen to this, now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying... And he's going to quote what we just read. Behold, a virgin shall be with with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So right there we find that God said, this is what I told you was going to happen. This is the fulfillment of what I promised. This child that is being born is God in the flesh. He is coming to earth. You see, Jesus didn't just come and prove his uh, messiahship by his miracles, but he proved he was the one that God promised because he fulfilled all the prophecies concerning the Messiah. We read in 1 Corinthians 15 of the gospel, My brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. And what does it say in there? 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's what, what it's, it's referring to, that he was doing so in fulfilling the, the, the prophecies regarding the Messiah. Okay, so in his birth, he proved that he was God, that he was Christ, but also in his death. This is he that came by water and by blood, 1 John says. It wasn't just his birth, but also his death that fulfilled the prophecies concerning the Christ. Okay, so let's go back to Isaiah once again. I told you we're going to do some turning here. But I think these things are important. And I know there might be some that are sitting there and you're thinking, well, I've heard all this before. Yeah, but we need to be reminded of these things. It's, good, it's a good thing for us to be reminded of why, we, why do we have confidence? How do we know that Jesus really is God? How do we really know these things to be true? Well, let's just look at what the Bible has to say about this. Because long before, I mean hundreds of years, thousands of years before Christ was born, these prophecies came into play and said that these things were going to happen exactly as they happened. Isaiah 53, we know this to be really a, 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 the entire chapter deals with, with the, the Messiah, the Lord, that would come and, and be our Savior. And uh, look with me, if you would, let's start in verse number 4. It says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. You read the account of the crucifixion, that's exactly what he did. He is brought as a, a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? Listen to this, for he was cut out off out of the land of the living. What does that mean? He died. The Messiah is going to die. Now the first century Jews didn't understand this. In fact, even today, most Jews don't understand this. But this is what God said was going to happen. That the Messiah would come and bear our sins, bear our iniquities, and die in our place. And then I love this, verse number 9, And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich, in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, he hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. We can go on. Okay, so here, here's what, it, what does it say? That he was numbered with the transgressors, that he would die for the sins of the people. Jesus, throughout his ministry, told his disciples and told people that he was going to die on behalf of the people. And that's exactly what happened. And I, I love that even in verse number 
9, it says he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Think about this with me. Jesus made his grave with the wicked. Do you know when he died, he, he died in between two thieves. I mean, he was right in the middle of them. He was numbered with the transgressors. A malefactor on this side and a malefactor on that side and right in the middle of them, the sinless son of God. And he made his grave with the wicked. And, it says, and with the rich in his death. Now, here's the thing. Those wicked people that were crucified at the hands of Roman soldiers, most of them were not buried like rich people were buried. I mean, these were criminals. These were outcasts of society. And many of them, when they were buried, they were buried in like a potter's field. You know, basically the place where the rejects go because there's nowhere else to bury them. Maybe a few had family and that kind of thing, but most of them, they were just kind of cast out and thrown aside. But Jesus, where was he buried? Oh, he was buried in the tomb, a freshly carved out tomb that belonged to a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. And you know what he did? He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Isn't it amazing? You could go through and we could talk all night of all the things that the Old Testament said were going to be true of the Messiah that were proven out in the life of Christ and over and over and over. And what is this saying when we're here in 1 John? We're looking at all of these things. We can believe that Jesus is the Son of God because He came not only by water, but by water and by blood. Not only by blood, but by water and by blood. And... This is, is a testimony, it is a witness that he is who he says he is. That he is the son of God. That's the point of this. The water and the blood testify or confess him as the son of God. And then also in verse number 6 in 1 John 5, it says, It is the spirit that beareth witness because the spirit is truth. So you have three witnesses to Christ as the Son of God. Here's what they are. His birth fulfilled what God said was going to happen. His death fulfilled all the scripture about the Messiah. And just in case those aren't enough, the Spirit of God testifies Jesus is the Son of God. Now, he did this also at his birth, in his ministry, and at his death. Think about this. When he was conceived in the... I, I encourage you, go back and read the first few chapters of the book of Luke. Like the first four or five chapters of the book of Luke. And count how many times the Bible says that... the that, that, that makes reference to the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost came upon Mary when she conceived. When she goes and she tells Elizabeth, who, by the way, was pregnant with John the Baptist, who was filled with the Holy Ghost from the womb, the babe in her womb leapt and she spake words that came from the Holy Ghost. It's, it says that. In his birth, he test, uh, the, the Holy Spirit testified of Christ. 
from the moment of conception. You see it in the temple when he was dedicated. You see it, by the way, at his baptism when the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. You see it even in his death when there was a, a shaking and a moving visibly and physically that was taking place upon the earth as the, the, there was a, an earthquake and the veil in the temple was rent and there was darkness over the face of the earth and, and there were dead people that were raised. I mean, the Spirit of God was moving. What was he doing? He was testifying that this man is God. But did you know that the same Spirit that testified of him at his birth and in his ministry and at his death testifies of Christ as the Son of God today in the world? Jesus spoke of him in John chapter 16 and said that, that when the spirit of truth comes that he will guide us into all truth. It says that he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And then he goes on to explain that he will reprove the world of these things because ultimately, because the world doesn't believe on him. In other words, the spirit points people to Christ. When I came to Christ, you know what it was? It was the Holy Spirit working on me and showing me my need for a Savior and showing me that Jesus was the only Savior and you got saved the same way, by the way. So we have these testimonies, this witness. How do we know that Jesus is who he says he is? Well, because in his birth he proved it. In his life he proved it. In his death he proved it. And the Spirit still witnesses and testifies that Jesus is the Savior. That's what the point of this is. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. Then we come to verse number 7. And it says this, For there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost... And these three are one. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are three persons, three distinct individuals, but they are one God. How does that work? I don't know. But it's very clear throughout the Bible... That God is one, He is one God, but He exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These three are one. And I find it very ironic, yet very sad, that this verse that so clearly proves and shows Christ as the Son of God and, and explains the Trinity, or what we would call the Godhead, so clearly actually receives intense criticism. If you have a Bible, other than the King James Bible, most modern translations cut off the second half of verse 7 and jump right into verse 8. They say something like this, for there are three that testify, and then verse 8, the Spirit and the water and the blood. Yet in between there, you find the statement that there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father and the Word and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Isn't it amazing how Satan has deceived and, and, and confused people 
to, to miss who Jesus really is. So we have this revelation of Christ, who he is. He is this, the eternal son of God, co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. And it's revealed right here. There are three, verse 7 and 8, that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. The Father and the Spirit, along with the Lord Jesus himself, are, are bearing witness of the truth. And, and in the world, we're able to, to see the witness of, of Christ as who he is through the the, the, the water and the blood and the spirit and all these things agree together to prove to us that Jesus is the Son of God. Why is this important? Because if you don't believe this, you can't be saved. I mean, our, our salvation is grounded in this truth. And then verse number 9 says, If we receive the witness of men... The witness of God is greater. For, the wit for this is the, the witness of God which he hath testified of his son. We hear attacks from the secular world and sadly even from much of the religious world on the deity of Christ and the sinlessness of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. We, 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 we see that these truths are under attack constantly, but I want you to know the witness of God is greater. And verse 10 says, He that believeth on the Son, the Son of God, hath the witness in himself. If you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit within you that witnesses and testifies of Christ. But listen to this, He that believeth not God hath made him a liar. Anyone who rejects the truth of Christ as he is who he is really is blaspheming against God. There are many people, kind people, generous people, good people by men's standards that according to this standard are blasphemers. Those who would reject what God said about himself. This is the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. A believer receives what God says, believes it, accepts it, and stands upon it. I mean, I, I believe these things to such a degree that I am trusting my eternal soul to this fact right here. That Jesus is the Son of God that he came to this earth, that he lived a sinless life and died in my place and bore my sins and he rose again the third day so that I could have eternal life. I, I am so confident in that that I am trusting him and him alone to save me. In other words, if this is not true, I'm in big trouble because my confidence rests in this fact that Jesus is my Savior. But listen, if you are not confident of that, if you are not trusting in that, you have rejected the message that God wants you to receive. 
according to John chapter 3 and verse number 18, those who have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ are condemned already. Why? Because they're so wicked. Well, yeah, we're all wicked, but this is why. This is the, this is the condemnation. They're condemned already because they have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the difference. That's the dividing line. This is the record, verse 11, that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. That's where eternal life is found. Please mark it down, receive it, consider this. Eternal life is not found in anything but Jesus. And if you reject Him, you've lost everything. You either have Christ or you don't. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. This is the dividing line. And then the question becomes, do you have Christ or not? Now, it is possible that you sit there tonight and you in your heart maybe even convince yourself, you know, I believe these things to be true. And by that, what you mean is that you intellectually accept something to be fact and factual. But there is a difference between accepting something as truth and really believing in it. You know what I mean? There's a difference. There are things that I've been told, and, and because people who are smarter than me tell me these things to be true, I accept that must be the case. But belief is, is much more personal. Belief is when I am absolutely convinced and persuaded. When we look at, at the subject of salvation in the Bible, we find words attached to it like persuaded. Uh, uh, Paul said, Paul said I, I know whom I have believed. I know whom I believe. And am persuaded that he is able. To keep that which I've committed unto him. I am absolutely 100% convinced of these truths. Are you convinced? Have you believed? Do you have the Son of God? Is he your Savior? And then we read in verse 13. It says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. That ye may know that ye have eternal life. It is wonderful to know that I have eternal life. I'm convinced of it. I am persuaded of it. I am convicted of it. You couldn't convince me otherwise. I know that I'm saved. I know that I'm his child. How do I know that? We've talked about this before. It's not how I feel. And it's really not even what I think. My confidence is rooted in this book right here. The Word of God. He said, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know. My confidence stands in what is written in the pages of this book. I've received it. I've accepted it. I stand upon it. I'm trusting in this. What God has said about me. And I am absolutely sure. 
Are you sure? You can be. These things have been written that you may know that you have eternal life. You know, some people teach, well, it's a, it's a sin of presumption to say that you know that you're saved. Listen, folks, I'm not being presumptuous at all. I am not claiming in any way that God should accept me or that, that somehow I'm good enough for God that would be presumptuous, that would be foolish, because I'm not. All I am doing is simply claiming the promise that God gave me of eternal life. I'm just taking God at His word, and I'm saying, because God said that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life, and whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, I am claiming the promise, I am trusting in Him, therefore I know that I'm His child. Do you know? Are you persuaded? Are you convinced? This is the dividing line. Lost and saved... It's all about Jesus. If you take the sinless, perfect Son of God out of the picture and you put anything else in His place, yourself, your religion, your family, whatever it is, you put anything else in place of Christ, you're on the wrong side of the line. You either have Christ or you don't. And if you have Him, you can know that you have eternal life because eternal life is in 